What's up, UX designers? Welcome to the UX Hustle Podcast. This is a show about having fun designing intuitive and valuable experiences and crafting a fulfilling career within UX design. Now here's your host, Sophia Wojciechowski Prater. Ben, hi. What's up? What's up? It's been a while. I feel like you, you we keep bumping into each other at all these fun events. I know. Do you have any events coming up? Oh, let me think. You know, I don't. I don't think I do. It's like a breath of fresh air. I just got rejected from two events. That's the life, is, man. <laughs> I know. I applied to two this year. I applied to uh, Euro IA and I applied to um, UX New Zealand. Nice. And both just, of them rejected me. It sounds um, like you just want to travel. That's what it sounds like. It's that is kind of it. Um, the Euro IA one is in was in Latvia. Is in Latvia. So I'm oh. like, oh, I love Eastern Europe. I've been to Latvia. Yeah. Yeah, it's in Riga. Yeah, Riga. Yeah, that would have been cool. But um, anyways, they Euro IA does the cool thing where they give you the reviewers' comments. So and because <laughs> some of them were pretty harsh. Yeah. Um, so it's just you know it's a good wake up call that like it's not that the content isn't good. I'm just still not presenting in a way that shows the value of it. So I just need to go back and look at that. Look at what I wrote six months ago and probably I'll be like, Oh yeah. There no is. <laughs> yeah. I can totally learn something from this. Um, for those that don't know you Ben, can you give us just, can you give us your UX origin story? If you need to go back to like when you were eight years old, we can do that. No, I don't have to go back that far. I, um, I studied computer science. And so when I graduated from school, I got a, a great job as a software engineer. And um, at the time, there were still a lot of, you know, Oracle hadn't consumed all of the databases out there. And so there were a lot of different flavors of Unix, a lot of different flavors of databases. And I was stuck managing like the AS400 port of some other database. I don't even know what, these days I don't even remember what it was. But, and I was like living in this sort of green screen land, you know, of like code and, and all this stuff. And <clears throat> I loved that. I learned a ton in that time. But at the same time, Windows applications were becoming this big thing, like native Windows applications. And so the product that I was working on, which was like a command line product, somebody on our team started to build a Windows front end to this command line tool that we were building and maintaining. And I was like this young kind of, you know, noisy cocky kid coming out of school and I was watching what was happening with this interface they were building. And it was probably typical for the time. It was just a big row of like six, six rows of buttons, you know, across the top of a, a window. And, and it was just like every function that you could, every uh, command you could type into there was basically just a button. And so it was like this terrible translation, like one-to-one, -one, you know, from two very different paradigms of interaction and I was like watching this happen and thinking to myself, that's not like, that's not what, that's not how this should be. You know, there's gotta be a better way. And so I started to make a bunch of noise about, about that. <laughs> and uh, you know, squeaky wheel gets the, gets the grease, I guess. So I, and, and eventually got moved onto that team and started to try and help, you know, uh, make some change in terms of how we were thinking about the interface that didn't last long. Um, I actually ended up stepping down from that position and I took kind of a break for about a year and I just played with all this stuff. I was like working at the time in like flash and like um, learning some like uh, it was like early CSS days. And um, I was just playing with different ways to build interfaces. And when I started, when I kind of started my first business, <clears throat> I got back into this idea of like, I want to, I want to be around for the conversations that are going to impact the user, you know? And so um, my whole transition at that point was basically from somebody who worked in the sort of deep back end to still writing code, but basically creating interfaces with the code and, you know, for, for humans, instead of, you know, focusing so much on functionality and business logic. And that's where I really found what I love to do, which was really at the time a front end developer. Um, and that's kind of how I got into the space. So when you were, you said you left that current position and you spent some time playing and you were exploring a lot of the new technologies. 
yeah. were you employed at that time? I was kind of volunteering. Um, and uh, I would like work for, at the time I was involved in a church and I was like helping them with their web stuff and, and design and a bunch of stuff. Um, they basically let me do anything I wanted. And so for like, <laughs> literally for almost a year, I basically every week created a bunch of like animation and video and web and photography. And I just was like, it was like this really creative time in my life. I basically played with every technology I could find. I was playing with After Effects and Flash and, and all the web technologies at the time. And, and it just like exposed me to all these things. And I wasn't great at all of them, you know, but there were a few that I like really kind of grew, you know, fond of. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I remember I bought, I bought this giant book. I probably still have it on a bookshelf somewhere here, but it's, it was uh, an O'Reilly book and it was, it's probably, I don't know, three inches thick and it's on DHTML. And it was basically, you know, I like would like go through these giant books and I, and, and I would just like pick out things and then just go build something. And um, that like experimentation is really, that's how I learn, you know? And so that time was really like, I just grew so much, you know? It sounds like you took some time off and you kind of gave yourself a self-taught master's degree or something like that. <laughs> like you were yeah. just giving your spa yourself space to explore. Yeah. And I want to talk about that for a minute because um, money and, you know, the ability to do that aside, I feel like a lot of people go from one job to the next without taking those spaces of time yeah. to learn and grow and pivot, you know, say, okay, which direction should I be going? Do I need to adjust this trajectory that I'm on right now? I think that the argument for jumping from one job to the next is that recruiters are looking at gaps in the resume and things like that. What would you say to somebody that is worried about taking, taking some time to explore, taking some time to tinker? Oh my goodness. This is so, <clears throat> this is such an important topic. I feel like I just want to recognize first, <clears throat> like what you kind of hinted at there, which is that it is a massive privilege to be able to do that. Right. Um, I worked as a computer science, you know, as a nerd basically for, um, four or five years and I basically saved a ton of money. And so I, you know, like I, I had all, I have, I've had every opportunity that somebody can be afforded. So I'm not saying that I, I earned that time, but I did, I was intentional in terms of like saving. Um, so I put some money away. I put a little money away so that I would have a little break, you know? Um, but I would say also that it wasn't just the time between positions, like in my free time, that's, this is like all that I was doing, you know? And so it just allowed me, it was basically like I put a microphone up to my free time for that next, you know, block of time. And a year is probably, oh, that's a long time, right? And I, I could see a recruiter, you know, saying, hey, like, that's a big gap. What did you do? You know, um, although I think if you told the story, you know, like, hey, you know, I just wanted to really deep dive on some tech and I wanted to understand the things. And I think that would be a really powerful story. So, um, you know, the volume of work that I was able to create in that time kind of like stood for itself. So I don't, I don't think I don't like as a high, as someone who hires and interviews regularly, I don't, I don't see those blocks, those holes as a challenge. Um, you know, I would want to know what they were doing in that time. And, and I'd like to see the product, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I'm, I am uh, actually about to, I'm a big proponent of the mini retirements. I don't have a better word for it, but sabbatical is not really the right word either because you're kind of, you're still digging in, you're still creating. And yeah. I'm about to take about four months to create some things that are, you know, just, I need to have an online course. I can probably yeah. pop out an ebook. Um, I have this stupid game. I shouldn't say stupid. I have this game that I haven't, <laughs> I've stupidly not marketed. Um, so I have this kind of laundry list of things that just need time. They just need time and space. So I'm about to take some time to step away from client work. And yeah, it took you know, three years of chipping away money to be able to have that little bit of buffer time. But I think it's so important to, because if sometimes if you're not quiet, if you don't have that time to just sit with yourself and marinate, marinate instead of it's like one client, one project, one client, one project, you don't really get the chance to, to figure out what you really want. Um, so true. Yeah. So when you were in that time, or even when it was just your free time, I usually save this question till near the end, but you sort of opened it up for me. Um, what it, how did you 
stay motivated? How did you like manage that time? Or did you have some sort of system in place to make sure that like those days, especially when you had a little bit more free time, that those days weren't just kind of melting away? I am not um, a highly organized person. So it takes a lot of work for me to stay kind of on track and to use my time well. I will say, because I was volunteering a little bit during that season, I I had sort of assignments, you know, it's just that there were almost no constraints (laughs) on how I delivered. So it was kind of almost like the best of both worlds for me, because there was a deadline, you know, there was always like a weekly kind of deadline thing. And I, and I would just like, basically, there was like a high level concept and I could just explore, you know, so there are some organizations and, and my company now Sparkbox is, is this way. And I was just in, um, I was just out in the DC area meeting with another um, web studio that, that has a similar model. And the idea is that it's like a recognition of the value of tinkering, like time to tinker, time to grow. And so um, instead of expecting that employees are going to, you know, work 45 hours and bill 40 of those to a client, there's a there's sort of a trend for organizations to have a lower uh, you know expectation on what the billable time is and leave some space in in a week for for an employee to actually explore and 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 mess with things you know um so so maybe you know finding an opportunity like that and and we have some fun folks at Sparkbox who have tried all kinds of different things to do with their extra time you know there's one guy who said i'm going to work you know all all of my expected, you know, average 32 hours in the first four days. And then I'm going to have all day on Friday to just mess around, you know? So he did that for a season and he tried to recruit folks to kind of come and and they would like, they're they're like building and maintaining some little open source things. And um, so I think something like that is good. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I I think it depends on the person for me. I I got lucky in the situation, you know, Um, I just, I had deadlines. That's kind of what I need, you know? Well, actually, I mean, I think that there's a golden nugget there and that's finding something to volunteer for. I mean, instead of people are always like, oh, I'll just, you know, redesign Spotify or something and that'll be part of my portfolio. Well, if you're looking for a job, maybe it's not a good idea to just redesign things that you don't like if you're the type of person that needs a little bit of accountability. Yeah. Um, And maybe it's also not a good idea to just design websites for like your mom or your cousin because they're your family and your friends. And maybe I did a few of those too. (laughs) Finding like a church, a nonprofit, some sort of organization that really is counting on you to do some work um, and weasel your way into a situation where they are counting on you. Um, I think that that is a great way to start building your portfolio. And then it turns into real stuff. Uh, Yeah. And so, you're doing good in the world, right? Like you're actually helping somebody. I mean, that's huge. What a great idea. Bonus. Never right. <laughs> bonus. You're actually creating value in that's the world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Neato. <Yeah. laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about Sparkbox. Um, so Sparkbox is huge. How many people do you have? I huge. mean, I Come didn't, I, I looked at the website um, recently and I just was scrolling through faces. I just kept scrolling through faces. Yeah. Um, so how many people, how many people do you have now? And, uh, and talk about just, um, okay, well, give me the, give me the number and then let's back up to how it all got started. Sure. Yeah. There's uh, I think there's 46 of us now. Dang. Yeah. yeah that's a lot of and people. We're, we're celebrating our 10th year this year. So we're really excited about that. At, Congratulations. Yeah. When you start something like this, I don't think you ever, you know, everybody asks you for your plans, you know, your business, but what's, what are you going to be in five years, 10 years, all that. And I can just, I mean, I could show you documents that we sketched out in those early days and there's just, it's not even close to what we imagined. You know, it's like so much different, so much better, honestly. And so when you started, uh, when you started Sparkbucks, um, let's actually go back even further. Was this your first being your own boss, being the boss situation, or was there another thing before Sparkbox? Right. Yeah. Before Sparkbox, um, I started a company called Design District and um, I had a business partner, a friend of mine was just kind of a buddy of mine that was into, he had studied film. And um, at the time, remember I was coming out of that sort of exploration phase and I had done a bunch of animation. I'd done a bunch of audio engineering I actually, during that year, I, I didn't even mention this. I went and studied audio engineering for a season. So and I had a little, re- I had a little recording studio. I'm a musician. So I was like, I was just like playing, you know, <clears throat> but 
I, uh, I kind of got in with this guy because we were making short films and um, you know, he would write and direct and I would help with lighting and audio and I was the sound engineer and um, yeah, it was just a lot of fun, you know, and we decided to try and make a business out of the video stuff. <clears throat> and so for us, for a small season with design district, we like the very beginning of that business, we did, we did some design work, but it was mostly kind of corporate video stuff. And um, I will tell you, there's not much that's more boring than sitting for eight hours in some, you know, manufacturing plant, recording somebody talking. I mean, wow, it was rough. So we did that for a little while. And then somebody asked us to build a website. And I was like, oh, I'm a computer science guy. Like I could totally build a website, you know? So <laughs> I didn't know a ton about it at the time, but I, um, and this is like early days before like CSS was being used for layout. So everything was table-based still. Um, it was, it so was, this a, was like 97 ish, uh, probably a little bit later, probably like 99. Okay. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Wow. We were still using tables in 99 time. Oh, goes, yeah. I, yeah. That's, oh wow. yeah. Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, so uh, 99, maybe 2000, 2001, we're starting to like make this transition towards like recognizing, oh my gosh, people are willing to pay us to do this web thing, you know? And um, so pretty soon all of our work that was coming in was really web work because it was just like this, you know, that time everybody was looking for this. Um, I ended up buying him out and just running Design District then for a year or two as just a web studio. And so that's kind of how I really got into the web, you know. And did you always know that you wanted to be your own boss or did it just kind of happen? No, I can remember in college, um, there was a, a, a science building and the computer science stuff happened in the basement, of course, of this science building. But I can remember coming up out of the basement, walking down the hall towards the exit and in the breezeway, there was a little cork board, you know, with all the little um, you know, rip this off for the phone number if you were interested in whatever, you know, and there was a bright purple, um, a bright purple, like eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And it said, join the young entrepreneurs club, learn how to start your own business. And I remember looking at that and I literally said to myself, I will, there is no way I would ever want to run my own company. That is insane. Why would you ask for all of that headache? You know? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. It's so weird. <clears throat> but <laughs> And I wonder why you remember that. It like makes me think that like another side of you was like actually really gravitating to it. And, yeah, and it was like the weird. devil and the angel on the shoulders or something. That's it. Maybe. And the, that weather side was quieted. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, that's funny that that stuck in your mind so vividly. Yeah. Um, so here you are with Sparkbox, um, 46 people strong. And it looks like a lot of the people that you have at Sparkbox are developers. Um, I didn't see anybody at Sparkbox with the title of UX design. Is that just right. because everybody's unicorns? Who's doing the UX design? How is the team structured? Yeah, that's a good question. <clears throat> We've been having some interesting conversations about this. When we started, everybody was just a developer. And, and that means even the folks who were designers, even the folks who were wireframing, who were, and it's because everybody worked in the medium. That's something that's kind of been part of, of, of what makes us a little bit, maybe a little bit unique is that <clears throat> even the folks who were writing content were, were capable of doing that in HTML, you know? Um, and so, you know, the medium that we work in is incredibly flexible and it's fault tolerant. And it's like this, it's just like a new way, you know, to think about how to share content. And we have like kind of become obsessed with that idea. And for us, I think it's kind of like, how do we stay close to that? You know? Um, and we talk about this, this like switching point in the process where you, you shift from like the problem solving mental, like design mentality to the refining, you know, the solution refining. And we try to get into the final medium before we do a lot of refinement. And so that means that even our designers have to write code. Um, you know, obviously we have software engineers who are writing sort of a different, a different level of code. Um, and we have architects and we have, but we do have folks who are doing, you know, usability testing and click tests and running those kinds of things, doing some research. We do a lot of discovery work, um, interviews and, and all of that stuff. And that's part of what we do. Um, I think we just have this sort of history of like starting from the dev side. And so there is that, 
from a title perspective, we probably need to look at that. You know, um, we have also had um, a history of our project managers being sort of more more than just PMs. Like they're usually they have usually traditionally played another role on the project, like a content strategy or a UX design or um, you know IA those kinds of things. So. I think that's that some of the UX work that we do is kind of hidden in that project management role too. Um, so I don't know if that's healthy, but that's just sort of historically how we've gotten to where we are. Well, um, you're doing great. So I would say it is healthy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's dig it. Let's go into the weeds on designing in the medium. So you're saying your content strategists are working in HTML. Like, Paint me a picture here. Yeah. I mean, what about, what about, okay, actually, spe more specifically, how are they working in um, instantiated content or anything that's like templatized? How well, do they create their templates? What medium are they working in there? So I'll walk back just a little because sure. it's not that our content strategists are living in an editor, a code editor and writing HTML all day. Um, we, we use all kinds of tools, right? So um we use static design tools. We use um, more sort of fluid design tools. We use, um, you know, we use Google Docs. We use all of those things are, are part of, of our process. It's just that we don't really talk about um, like content strategy as a deliverable, right? So we, we talk about the idea that we're really, it's a, it's a one deliverable workflow. Like the, the deliverable is something that works in the browser for us. And so as quickly as we can get to that, we do. And that means that everybody has to not be afraid of being in the code. So everybody can submit a pull request through GitHub. Even if they don't have a big complex editing environment, they can get into GitHub. They can use GitHub's tools to make edits and submit pull requests. And then all of that can be reviewed and merged, right? So there's like the common understanding. We talk about, a, it's called a threshold of empathy for us. It's like, you don't have to, uh, if you're, if you're gonna work on the team as um, a front-end designer, you don't have to understand how um, to write all the logic that's going to access the database, but you have to understand that when you make a decision in the design, it might impact those things. And so, so we, we encourage that sort of cross-discipline pairing to raise everybody's skills, to understand how their decisions are going to ripple through the organization. That I think has to be part of a modern process. And so that means that we're not afraid to be in the code or, for devs to be in those static design tools too, right? So it's not a one-way thing. It's just, it's just openness to to the appropriate medium for the phase that you're in. Does that make sense? It does, and I'm I really I want to continue to dig in here because I'm yeah. currently on a project right now where we are in sort of um, the deliverable muck. I won't say deliverable hell, but it's um, a lot of expectations on deliverables and checkpoints. Yeah. And kind of even checking boxes a little bit, like, oh, we, we need a site map. Like, where's our site map? Let's and then we, let's get approval on the site map. Um, when you have a client, how do you coach your client, or how do you um, kind of set the expectation that it's like, okay, that final deliverable is something that's working in the browser, and we're going to go through a process, but one thing is going to kind of flow into the other thing. And I don't know if you do this, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like basically like not making any promises on like, there's going to be this deliverable and there's going to be this deliverable. Yeah. We're going to pick and choose the deliverables that make sense for your specific project. Yeah. How do you set those expectations and train the client? Um, I'm going to ask like three questions at once and, and also like keep it straight with your team. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I had a realization about our sales process. Um, it's been four years or so ago now. I realized that the way our team worked was just what you described, right? Very iterative, like very fluid. <clears throat> we embrace the idea that we're going to know more tomorrow than we do today and like all of that. <clears throat> but our sales process was very almost rigid. It's like somebody would come, they'd say, hey, I, I'm interested in what you offer. We would learn a little bit about their scope. We would disappear for a few weeks we would come back and like reveal this proposal to them and they would look at it and they would say yes, or they would say no, you know? And, um, and then all of a sudden, like that's how we've behaved. Right. And then all of a sudden they're, if they said yes, they're transitioned to this model. That's very, very different, which is like iterative and like, who knows what we're going to build next week? You know, let's figure that out now. Um, 
And so <laughs> we actually have been over the last probably three or four years intentionally changing how we have those very early conversations to more closely model what it's actually going to be like to work with us. Mm -hmm. And so um, <clears throat> along those lines, we, we probably ask way more questions about sort of a future state. I don't want to know so much about your scope. I don't want to know so much about the features. I don't, I'm more interested in like a year from now, what has to happen for us to be like, for you to be so thrilled that you chose to work with Sparkbox. Like if you can just start to dream about that future state, then we can like hear what's actually valuable to you. So we have conversations that are a little bit more sort of theoretical, kind of like that. But then the, the process for us to write a proposal is incredibly raw. It's incredibly iterative. Um, we, we create what we call a, a collaborative estimate. So it's literally a, a shared Google spreadsheet and we have, fields that are highlighted in there where we work hourly. And I think that the business model hourly versus fixed versus value, whatever, I think that actually has something to do with this too. So we should come back to that. Mm -hmm. But um, we, we leave space in there for folks to kind of go in and play with the numbers. Like, why would I think that I could tell you exactly what this should cost when there's literally hundreds of ways to approach this work, right? So the 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 budget the estimate has to make sense for our customer and for us if it doesn't work for one or the other then it's not a good fit so why why don't we just like create a, a doc that's like very raw and 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 allow our teams to get in there and kind of play with things until we both see if it's something that works for us you know that so that's the model that we kind of follow and that approach to talking with new customers helps set the expectation for what it's going to be like to work with us um we say things to people like we're okay with very raw deliverables. So, you know, the, the word deliverable always comes up. We don't think about them like that, but, but they're going to want to see progress. You know, for us, usually we, um, we sketch a lot and then we take a picture of that. And like uh, another shop might take, send that to a junior designer, throw it in InDesign and like lay it out. And all of that in my mind is like time. It's really kind of being wasted. Like we're focused on refining a deliverable, a picture of a thing that's not even in the right medium. And it's like, that's three hours that got spent where I could be making progress, solving an actual problem, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's all just so that a client feels good when they look at a thing. <laughs> and really yeah. like, it's, so, it's such a waste of time, you know? So, so we, we say that to a customer and I say, hey, we're hourly. So that means, what that means to me is that I have to show you a tremendous amount of value for every single hour that I work. So I'm not going to waste it on stuff that's not important. Our customers can walk away from us at any point. We don't have long-term contracts. Now we have clients who stay with us for years because we, we try our best to kind of put their interests first. But this is what I was kind of getting at with like the business model where if you're, if you're fixed price, if you're fixed in some way or if that value price, you have to have some kind of well-defined scope, you know, and that means there needs to be milestones. And it's like, how do I know when to invoice? Will you invoice when a deliverable has been approved, right? That's kind of the model. If you're hourly, it's about us making good decisions along the way in really small kind of increments so that at the end, the thing we're delivering is really good. So for us, it's like, here's a URL. You can go look at this URL. This is the current state of our latest version. No matter how ugly it is, it's going to be broken sometimes when you click on it. But like this is the current state. And that's just the nature of, of software. That's the nature of the web. So it's a little bit different, you know, in terms of how we, how we think about it. I've run into the same thing where when you, say, when you do a fixed price project, you have to make so many assumptions and you have to be so confident in your assumptions. And it's one of those things. There's so many unknown unknowns. Like you have to dig in. I mean, just thinking about something as simple as competitive analysis. Like I can say the competitive analysis is going to take 40 hours. But I could go in and I could at three hours into the competitive analysis realize that the land the competitive landscape is way more complicated than what I thought. It I needed three hours to figure that out. And then I'm thinking, actually, like I to make this really valuable, I need like 80 hours in here. I need to really dig into these tools. I need to like do some serious recon or I can get three hours in and be done. Totally. <laughs> okay. Totally. I figured out what I need to know here. Yeah. Um, so mm. it, 
I've tried to do discovery projects where those discovery projects are kind of that like little sample platter of all the bits of the process. Like we'll do a little bit of research. We'll do a little bit of design work to do that kind of audit of complexity. So then I can come back with a better estimate. Um, But usually even that estimate, what I'll do is a high ball and a low ball estimate and just say, if, if everything goes real smooth, then it's going to come in around here. This is number of hours times hourly rate. If yeah. things turn out way more complex and we have yeah. to iterate more, it's going to be around here. Yeah. High ball column, low ball column. <laughs> totally. And I think the discovery thing that you mentioned is is huge. And we almost every engagement that we do starts with discovery. And that is, like you said, it's it's a little different. Maybe it's not like a sample of everything that we could do, but you know, it's a it's a pretty distinct process that involves a lot of interviewing and, and some competitive analysis and content analysis and, and a tech strategy, experience strategy, all of those things. But it's really focused on us setting measurable goals so that and, and, you know, getting our customers to agree and participate in the whole process of establishing what those are. And then it's like, hey, this is how we're successful moving forward, you know, and and that makes it clear, you know, and so. I don't know. That's been a, that's been a, the transition to uh, in the sales process, basically selling discovery and then allowing discovery to sell production. That's been a really good transition for us because we get a chance to get to know these customers, you know, in that discovery process and we spend time with them and we can tell if it's a good fit for us, you know, and and they can tell too. So it's healthy. Right. It's kind of like, let's, let's date, let's date before we get married. Sure. Let's hang out for four weeks, four weeks of discovery, and then we'll talk about, you know, getting a little, getting it a little deeper. That's right. Um, so one, um, one last question. I do want to get into design systems um, because you're doing a lot of work there and it is a hot topic these days. Um, but one more thing about Sparkbox that I want to get into is your apprentice program. Can you talk a little bit more about the apprentice program when it started? Um, and also, like, why do you call it an apprentice program as opposed to an internship? Yeah, I would say that this is one of the things that I am probably the most proud of for our, you know, from from our team's perspective. We've been running an apprenticeship for about eight years. Um, I think we're on our eleventh or twelfth class of apprentices. It is something that you know, like when I look back at how it started, it was it was all super organic. It wasn't. I wish I could say we saw that like this apprenticeship program would, would, um, you know, like help us in terms of like hiring. It would help us in terms of um, uh, like creating a culture of learning. I wish I could, I didn't see that it would do those things for us, but it's amazing how it has impacted us culturally. And even from a business standpoint, um, high level, we take applications for our, our full stack developer apprenticeship in the, at the end of each year, we choose between two and four, individuals out of that pool of applicants. They moved to Dayton, Ohio. They are paid for six months to be a, a Sparkbox apprentice. And they really, it's just a learning position. So they're paid to learn. They're paid to come and live basically here and spend all of their time in a professional environment, pairing with real designers and developers and, and working on getting better at their craft. Out of that apprenticeship program at the end of six months, we we are happy to help them find a position. We've, we've got a lot of friends in the business that are always looking for good folks. Um, and occasionally we make a, a decision to hire. I was at our last, we were all together at Sparkbox at our last company retreat. And on a whim, I kind of asked, how many of you came through the apprenticeship program? And it turns out that it's almost a quarter of our team has come through wow. that program. Yeah. And these are folks who, you know, uh, six eight years ago, didn't know a tremendous amount, but have, okay, they basically over six months proved to us that they have a, a strong desire to learn and a high ceiling in terms of their capability. And now they're working on like some of the largest scale design systems that have ever been built. You know, like it's incredible to see how much they have grown. I would say <clears throat> we also run a, a, a shorter uh, front end design apprenticeship program. We have that happening right now. It kind of happens during the summer. Um, more geared towards sort of college students graduating and then looking for a, an opportunity right out of school. So that's that's a, another program that we do. There, it's the, the curriculum is all open sourced. If folks are interested, I can share a link with you, maybe to share with your uh, listeners. Sure. Um, I will say that the the big thing 
the reason that we ended up doing it and the thing that it's helped us in terms of our culture is really this idea that as an organization, we, we want to be talent producers, not talent consumers. And there's a lot of like agency life that is, you know, can be intense where there's way too many hours and it's like get folks in young pay them not much and work them to death until they are burned up and then they go off. And, you know, a lot of people in the space look back at their time in that kind of role and they think about that as like, I learned so much, you know, and sometimes those are good opportunities, but it's also, it can also be a kind of a disrespectful agreement arrangement, you know? And so our goal has been, how do we take care of people? How do we create a place where talent can grow? And, our, our, our mission is to inspire and, ins- and empower a better web. Like, so the apprenticeship program helps us do that. Even if those folks don't stay and work with us, they, they take a little bit of Sparkbox's ethos out with them. And hopefully they, they kind of encourage that in other places. So it's been amazing for us. The whole team, we say it takes a, a whole team to raise an apprentice. Like everybody's involved, you know, they, they make office hours, they pair with them. It's, it's been incredible. I, it's probably, it's probably one of the best decisions we've ever made. So on the uh, creating a culture of learning, and I, I always one of my one of my mantras is teach what you need to learn because mm. I've found that to be so true, and um in my life, I mean, it was getting the opportunity to teach object oriented UX. It wasn't even called object oriented UX when I first. It was a talk that I did at Adaptive Paths um, UX Week that. They were like, yeah, turn it into a workshop. And I had to figure out how do I teach this stuff that is so embryonic in my mind. And then I had to organize it. And then through teaching it is how I began to learn the value of it and then teaching it again. Like that's why I continue to run workshops because I learn. Yep. Um, so are you finding that to be true within your, within your more senior people as they are teaching, they are actually learning, they are actually solidifying ideas or is it also, or a mix of these, um, that you're learning, um, I guess what design is changing so quickly. Processes are changing. Technologies are changing. The way that we're doing, we're working is changing. UX is changing a lot. Um, and I'm doing a lot of mentoring of people that are in general assembly, graduating from boot camps. Um, and it's been really beneficial for me because I'm learning things that I, I just, I didn't have a general assembly education. I had an industrial design education that's now like 15 years old. So I'm starting to learn things that I don't know as well because I'm having this perspective of, just, I guess, a different perspective. So what do you feel like that culture of learning? Can you just talk a little bit more about that and how that's sort of, how that's manifested in Sparkbox? Yeah, I think if you imagine like having a, a room full of very smart people and then having like this, you know, two or three like highly energetic hungry young folks come in and start asking and probing all these questions, you know, like, (laughs) why do you do it that way? What's this about? Why would you do that? What about this? That makes you question everything, right? Another another thing we say is that our process, our tools, they're always fighting for their life. It's like, there's so many ways to do this. And I think as an industry, sometimes I think we care way too much about how we get to really good work and a little bit not quite enough about actually just getting to really good work. <laughs> so, so for us, it's like, Hey, the process can change. Like what's, what's the result, you know, like, um, and so the apprentices make us understand that they make, they, they, they call into question all the things that we just assume, you know, um, you're right. Teaching makes you smarter for, for us as a company that also manifests itself in the workshops we do in the the speaking and the writing, like we have a strong culture around writing because I think me personally, if I want to learn something, then I just, I go, I decide to like write about it. And that for me, I don't want to write the things that have already been written. So I go and I do all this reading and I learn and it's like everything you write is, it's like stacking, you know, layers on, on the shoulders of others who have, have, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, shared their learning. So we say to folks that there's, it's kind of like, everybody's there's always people who will be smarter there's always folks who are a little further behind and you have to play that role where you're like you know learning from somebody and teaching somebody otherwise there's like a gap in that you know and i don't even i i, I talk about that for <laughs> really. yeah so. yeah you have a really dreamy grin on your face right now thinking <laughs> <laughs> talking about the apprenticeship program i love the visualization of like these little balls of energy just running around bouncing off of people being like what are you doing what are you doing what's That's that right. <laughs> yep yep 
Good. <laughs> just like poking at things. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> just keeps everyone on their toes. So let's shift gears and talk um, talk about design systems just yeah. a little bit. So this is sort of how our conversation started. Um, I think it was at Revolve, maybe before the Revolve conference, but uh, we started talking about OOUX, so object-oriented UX, the stuff that I go on and on about, and how design systems and like how that kind of might mesh together. So can you, for me please, can you define a design system? I'm definitely starting to see you know, consensus in the industry around the idea that a design system is much more than just a library of patterns. It's more than a set of brand guidelines. It's more than just, you know, voice and tone. It's really sort of the combination of all of that stuff. It's basically like inside of an organization, if you want to build a product, this is how you construct it. It's all the, all the pieces and parts for that, including guidelines for how to use those components, guidelines for how to use that interface. When is it appropriate, you know, to, to use a a certain element The the systems that we create, I'll tell you this, we've never built uh, the same kind of system twice because for these things to be successful, they have to, they have to be a product of the organization within which they're living. So, you know, you can't just take a cookie cutter design system solution and like plug it in. It's got to integrate with, it should, you know, integrate with whatever your tech stack is. It's got to integrate with your processes or you have to be willing to change your, your, your workflows to sort of accommodate that, that model. So I would say more succinctly, it's a set of you know components, interface components. Generally, it's it's the building blocks to to create those. It's the guidelines that that you know instruct you how to. Many times, it includes code that can be brought into a project for, from a developer's perspective and used. Um, many times, it comes with you know a design system documentation site, which is kind of what we think of when we say design system. It's like the place where you go to look at it. Um, but you can have a design system that doesn't have that. Uh, the one other quick thing. I've heard a lot of folks use this idea that it's it's sort of a language, you know, it becomes sort of like language for your design. And I think that's a really cool way to think about it in the same way that you can construct, you know, sentences using a set of guidelines around what different you know types of words and, and that kind of thing. You can do the same thing with it with an interface, you know, with an experience. It's like a language plus a little bit of the culture as well around it so the language and the grammar which i guess goes together and then also like the idioms the things that you say and and knowing to say that oh i don't say this to this type of person and i say this to this type of person um that's uh that's a really great analogy i think that actually helps me a lot going back to the all each one being unique that it has to be in the context of the company i i hear that you're saying that we can't just copy and paste and change the fonts and colors right (laughs) damn (laughs) (laughs) all right so but are there any shortcuts are there any like do you use starter templates at all to like or have a laundry list like okay we need to make sure that we have all of our h1 states sure yeah drop down lists and radio buttons there's yeah there's definitely some of that you know there there are only so many sort of core building blocks that HTML gives us, you know? So if it's web-based, uh, you have that constraint, but really like with JavaScript, you can kind of create anything, you know, I think it's, um, there, there are some shortcuts in that there's, there's tooling available, you know? So, um, there's all kind, and this space is like exploding right now. There's all kinds of, of tools that you can use that, that just start to like, kind of like an empty system for you to just start filling up. <clears throat> so there's that stuff. I say, you know, sometimes that's appropriate. Sometimes it's not. It just depends on the context. So in the same way, this probably works in, in object-oriented UX, but I'll take, I'll go on a quick stretch just to see, and you can just tell me if I'm right or wrong. <clears throat> when you're just starting a project and you're trying to like break down the problems, there's no way for you to understand what all of the little pieces are until you have to like start with the problem and start breaking it down. And then you kind of refactor the components that, 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 that you're using to solve the problem. Of course, and the yeah. Thing, yeah. And the, so the same thing is true with a design system. Like you can't just start by, by building all the tiny things. Like at least that's not how it sort of makes sense for us. There are some, there's some of that that you can do, but how do you choose your typeface without like actually thinking about the, the communication problem that you're solving, right? So, so you, you have to kind of start at that higher level and then you break that down and you refactor and you break those down and you refactor. And eventually what you're left with is 
a really nice reusable set of tiny pieces that can then be reconstructed to solve different problems, you know, and it's that reusability that gives you the consistency and the efficiency. And, you know, it's like that, that moment. And if you're a designer where you open up the blank canvas and it's like, Oh gosh, okay. I know we have brand guidelines and I have to like all the decisions that I'm going to make about just like the width of this thing or the roundedness of these corners. I was like, I got to go look all that up. And like, wouldn't it be great if those problems were just solved once, you know, it's like, why waste all of that creative energy resolving the same problem over and over again. Right. And, and so the, the, the goal is to get it to a point where it's like the common problems are solved. When there's a new problem, we can focus our energy on that and we can solve it well. And then we can refactor it into the system. And now what's the next new problem? You know, it was inevitable that we would get to this point as, as an industry because it completely changes how you work once you, once you've lived through that, that process of like having it, you know, functional in your organization. There has been this explosion of tools with um, DSM, with Envision. I know Sketch has a lot of solutions now as well. Oh my gosh, Zeppelin now has a, has a design system solution that they're coming out with. So with this explosion of, of interest in design systems and um, it's kind of really hot in the zeitgeist, what do you think spawned this? Is this just the maturity of our industry or do you think there's something that happened or that we had? How did we get to this point? Man, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, we have one customer um, that we've been helping for the last two and a half years with a big, it's a really big multi-brand design system. And about a year and a half in, I think they had spent enough money on this project that it was like crossing some threshold. And so like the executives were like seeing it get flagged, you know, in their reports or something. And so they started asking questions of, of the directors and the managers and set, and we're trying to figure out like, hey, what is this thing? We're not saying you can't do this, but that's a lot of money. Is it worth it? Justify your existence, right? And so they were the, they, they then started kind of like going to the different groups inside of the organization that were using the system they'd built. And they started asking, like, imagine that you had to do that project where you use this system, but you didn't have the system. How much, you know, would, how much time would that have taken? You know, how much did you save by having the system? And this isn't like exact science, right? It's hard to know, but they had a, a handful of folks internally do that estimation for them. And what they determined is that they were saving for every dollar they spent on the design system, they were saving three. And if just in, just in designer and developer efficiency, Wow. like, I think that we're at a point with this where enough organizations that care about metrics like that have gone down this path and they're starting to ask those questions and they're starting to get some real numbers. You can't, you can't ignore that, right? A three to one investment, plus we're going to get better consistency. Plus you, you, you're worried about getting sued from, for accessibility. Well, Hey, this isn't a perfect solution, but we can spread accessibility around all of your, all of your experiences. If we, if we can all adhere to the same components, you know, um, I mean, there's so many benefits. It's, it's like I got lists and lists. I've got whole presentations that are just on how to sell a design system because it's so easy. You know, there's, mm -hmm. there's so much good material there. So I feel like it's almost like you can't ignore it at this point, you know? I mean, just the business case for it being so strong with designer efficiency. I wonder if it just, we hit a tipping point where businesses are now under understanding the value of design and they want their designers to be efficient. So yeah. it had to get to like, okay, well, we've heard we need to hire a designer. <laughs> okay, we've hired that designer. Now we're like paying more and more money for these designers. Yeah. Because the rates of the designers are going up because we understand the value of user experience design. We understand the value of consistency and having like that strong brand. And now it's an efficiency question. Yeah. We do want our designers to be solving those higher level problems. Right. And not reinventing the wheel every time they open up the canvas. Yeah. Um, so can you, <laughs> two more questions for you. Okay. Let's try to, let's try to knock them out. Okay. Uh, and both of them are like super in the weeds. We're not going to do any of those like silly in, in okay. questions about like, what kind of peanut butter do you like? Right. Um, okay. So <laughs> Peter Pan, by the way, <laughs> let's talk about governance. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Just, you know, in the last six minutes we have together, <laughs> um, governance and like, actually, I love how you mentioned that part of the design system is telling people how to use the design system. How do you like put that alongside? Like, is that a different document? Like, talk to me about details. How do you actually translate 
how to use the design system within this package that you deliver. In, in the design system documentation sites that we build, there is often a whole section around guidelines. So it lives sort of in line with a component. So if you're looking at some form element, you know, there might be some language that says, hey, this is this is for use in these types of situations. And here is an example of what that code could look like. And if you're a developer, here's what your include would look like to be able to get access to these form elements or whatever, you know. Um, so there's that kind of stuff. And then maybe there's different states of that element. And here's what those look like. And here's what the classes are. And if you're a CSS, you know, uh, coder, all of that kind of stuff can sort of live in, in the documentation site. But there's, um, when you say governance, I, I, I like to also remind folks that it's, it's definitely important that the subscribers to the system internally understand how to use it. But it's equally as important that they understand that it is never done, right? That it's, this isn't like, a thing that's just wrapped up and it's delivered and now here's all of your problems are solved. It's very common that they will come to the system hoping to find something and not find it, right? And they have, in that scenario, they have a new problem. Now that's that's exactly what we want. And if you are set up in a way that the design system is sort of a little bit more static, your tendency is going to be, sorry, no, we can't do that. And that's like one of the biggest challenges Right. A designer who's uh, like a highly creative person who really wants to do their job well, they're going to feel like a design system is restricting them. And it can't be it can't be that. Right. It has to be an enabler. So when you say governance, it's I was just going to say that it's it's equally as important. that They understand the, the process for adding to the system. One thing that we learned that's really cool um, is that one of our clients just started to do this. And I was like watching this happen and thinking that's brilliant. When they hired somebody new, they actually hired them onto the design system team. So they had a they treat it like a product. It's a living, breathing thing. It has releases, it has release notes, you know, all of that. And they have a team maintaining it, cross-discipline team. So when you're new, you start on the design system team. Now you're learning your 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 time to sort of ramp up is learning how to use the system, learning how to maintain the system. After a season there, you move out to another team. And now you're you're essentially an advocate for the design system, you understand how it evolves and how to use it, and you're building products with it. And then all these folks who were on teams can sort of take a turn rotating through. And now it's just like, yes. I mean, it's like amazing, you know, like you're getting up to speed faster, you're way more productive as soon as you're on that team. It, that, that whole process of like, making sure the docs are good in terms of how to use it, making sure there's a clear process in terms of how to evolve it, and then thinking about your staffing as, as people come onto the team and giving them opportunity to actually be part of that team. That creates that sort of culture of like maintenance of governance that's needed for it to live. Does that make sense? That that's genius. You haze them, <laughs> haze, haze your new recruits through making them like making them sit on the design system team. Not that that's like a bad gig or anything, but that you would need to like live and breathe the thing, become passionate about it. Not only passionate about the design system, but then you're sort of like, you're kind of passionate about the brand. You're sort of passionate right. about how the company works. And yeah, becoming a, a soldier and an advocate to then go to the a, another team and bring all that with you. That, I mean, any company that has a design system, I would recommend, like almost blanket recommend that that be part of an onboarding to be Absolutely. as a designer or a developer to be part of the design systems team yeah. and kind of rotate it through to not have like three people that are the design systems team. <clears throat> Maybe you have three people that have a season and then you always have the onboarding people and they're sort of the welcome committee. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, totally. Like we're, we're, it's, it's our season to be managing the design system and you're going to be here for the next X amount of weeks or months. I yeah. think that that is genius. Um, so another quick pivot, going back to going back to Sparkbucks and being somebody that hires and is looking at a lot of resumes for apprentices and for full-time hires. What are those top things that you look for when you're recruiting new thing, new new things? When you're recruiting <laughs> new thing one and thing twos? That's right. When you're recruiting new people? I'll be completely honest. I don't look at resumes that much. Um, I know that's like terrible because people put like all this time into resumes. I mean, I look to see like, where have you worked? I look to see if you have a website and I'll go to your website for sure. Okay. And what are you looking for on that website? 
uh, I'm going to view source and I'm going to look at how it's built and I'm going to like, I'm going to click around. I'm going to try it on a bunch of different devices and I'm going to see if it's accessible. And it's like, it's like, what do you care about? Right. I, I want to see that you're, even if you're not like a designer, are you at least like thinking about what this experience is like for people? You know, we've, we've done a lot of thinking because of like our concern at Sparkbox, at least, and, and in the industry about sort of the, the fairness of the hiring process. We're, we're pretty careful about how, how we go about that. I definitely look at a lot of candidates, but there's a whole process that we have internally with folks, you know, depending on the role that somebody is applying for, there's a, a team of folks who are looking at those applicants because we're at a point now where we're just always accepting applications. And so we're, there's a whole like involved process, you know, it's a, it's, it's a kind of a long drawn out thing to get hired mm -hmm. at Sparkbox, you know, um, I feel bad about that sometimes, but it's also like the most, the most important job that I have is making sure that, that we're, we're hiring the right people because right. if you don't do that, it changes everything, especially we're you said we're big, but we're still small. 40 some people is like, if I hire one person that has the possibility to impact who we are as a company. You know, we, we say that we're hiring based on values. So, you know, what I want to see is the, the, the three, the three entry level values, that we hire for our fluency. You got to be, you got to have a high potential in terms of your skill set. So if we're hiring you as a designer, they either have to be really good at design or you have to show that you can be really good at design. Humility and empathy are the other two. Flu you know, fluency and humility, maybe they that feels like a thing where it's like you're one or the other, <laughs> but um, that's not really true. Like you can be, you can be very good and still recognize that you're not ever the best, you know, and that there's always something to learn from everybody you interact with. So I think it's that idea of staying in learning mode is kind of what we mean by mm -hmm. humility. And then empathy, that's what I was talking about earlier, where it's like, you need to understand how your decisions are going to impact the rest of this team. And if you don't care about that, that's probably not a good fit for us. We still hire a lot of our more junior folks through the apprenticeship. So, you know, they live with us for six months, you know, like you can fake your way through writing a resume, maybe through a few job interviews, but you cannot fake it through six months of, of you know, eight hours a day. Right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And I yeah. think that having a, having a long, let's just say, let's have it, having a robust, having a robust re recruiting process. Um, yeah. and even, I mean, the apprenticeship is, I would say part of that recruiting sure. process, um, making your recruiting process very robust, very rigorous is a really good sign of a good employer. You don't necessarily. So for all those out listening and going through interviews right now, I would be wary if you get an immediate job offer after one phone interview. Yeah, definitely. That means that the company might be a little bit desperate sure. and that they're not making sure that it's a right fit. Um, that was my experience. I did have that happen. And the jobs that hired me very quickly, <laughs> in retrospect, that was kind of a bad sign. Yeah. Um, and then the ones that really, you know, I could tell that they were interviewing a lot of people by the end of that process, we knew that it was a good fit. So yeah. I think there's a balance, right? I mean, as a, as a hiring organization, we try to be really conscious of what we ask of applicants because not everybody has the same life situation that I do, you know? Um, you know, so we're, we're, we try to make sure that the things that we ask are reasonable for a, a wide, you know, a diverse set of applicants, you know, mm -hmm. that, with lots of different living situations and lots of different perspectives. And so there's a balance between those things. Um, not everybody can take a day to travel to, to your location, right? We, we, that's a part of our process. But if somebody is in a situation where, you know, like they're a single parent and they, they don't have the ability for somebody to watch a kid, you know, like, Hey, like we're willing to have those conversations and, and adjust that process to make sure there's space for everybody. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, that's amazing. I think everybody that's listening, to this is going to be <laughs> trying to come work at Sparkbox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds you like Sparkbox a pretty awesome place to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fun. We'll definitely, we'll definitely link to sparkbox.com. Um, anything else, anything else you want to tell um, all the UX hustlers out there, anything you got going on, you want to make sure that they know about. Um, on the topic of design systems, we last year did some industry research, a survey, um, and we have just kind of finished up, um, you know, like sort of high level analysis of this year's survey. So um, we did it in 18. We just completed it in 19. We're working now on preparing that for sort of a release uh, on the little website that we have. So 
um, when that comes out, I'll, I'll make sure I share it with you and you can share it with folks. It's interesting just to see, you know, what's happening in that space and what, how are things changing over time and what's important to people? Why are the systems working when people feel like their systems are successful? Why is that? Um, so we're learning a lot just by asking questions of folks who are doing this work. That's great. That's great that you're following up and doing that research. So I will definitely link to that. Um, and then all the writing that you're, um, yeah. that you and your company is doing, is that all on sparkbox.com or do we got, we have an mm -hmm. medium URL or something? It's, it's, uh, it's C sparkbox, S E E sparkbox.com. And, uh, we have a little section there called the foundry. That's our, that's where we write. Um, there's all kinds of stuff. There's lots of newsletters you can join. I write one called the be better newsletter, which is not technical at all, but it's Ooh. more about just as individuals, you know, if we want to be better at our jobs, we have to be better people. And so um, it's about how do we maybe go through that process with each other in the, in the workplace. Um, Very cool. I will definitely yeah. be subscribing to that. I love being better. Um, right. Yes. And I'm sure that a lot of uh, the people listening as well are going to, that's going to really resonate with them. So thank you so much, Ben. This has been really, really awesome. Thanks for hanging out with the UX Hustle. For show notes and more episodes, go to uxhustle.org slash podcast. And remember, don't wait for inspiration to act. Act to get inspired.